HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Hey there, you're listening to Fields, the unfinished story of urban agriculture season two with Melissa Metric, Wythe Marshall, and now Allie Wist. And of course, our amazing engineer, Liam Werner. You're listening to a teaser episode that we taped this summer, and we thought we would drop it in the feed a little bit closer to launch for season two. Now that we have a bunch of episodes in the bag and we're just polishing a few more interviews up, we thought... Let's get it in there, see what people think. It's just a conversation. Uh, hopefully it's fun, and it gives you a sense of some of the topics we're going to cover in this season. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, welcome back to Fields, Season 2. I'm Wife Marshall. And I'm Melissa Metric. And we're going to be joined by a third host in Season 2, whom we'll be introducing presently. Uh, but first, we thought we would just chat a little and catch you up. If you listen to Season 1, we want to say thank you so much. Uh, Heritage Radio Network, thank you so much. We had a lot of fun putting that together. It was a lot of work. There's a lot of tape we're still digging through. Uh, but we've been recording a lot of interviews since Season uh, 1 came out, and we were just going to sort of preview some of that content today, just drop a little teaser in the feed, as they say. Yes, very excited. <laughs> so excited. So, <laughs> Melissa, what are you, uh, you know, a lot has happened. Uh, we started the show before COVID. Um, it came out uh, in the beginning of, of 2021. But now we have all these new episodes, all these new interviews. Um, what are some things you're excited about that are going on in food and ag? Just generally, what are you up to? Um, I would say definitely things that I'm excited about, um, especially, well, maybe this is going a little bit too fast into season two but grains so that sounds uh i don't know maybe some folks are like grains what do you mean grains like why are you excited about grains you know it's just the beginning of civilization all that other stuff and looking at the history of grains and um actually also growing grains at the nyu urban farm lab which is um the nyu farm that i manage um right now we are growing uh I have to think. We're growing sorghum. We're growing amaranth. And soon I'm going to plant some hullus wheat, I think. Or is it hullus oats? Maybe oats. That it's would make more sense three different grains on the side of Houston Street. In yeah, Manhattan. and very small plots, which is kind of silly because they're grains. <laughs> it's like we literally get like... Like, if you think of a garlic knot, hey, we're in New York. If you think of the size of a garlic knot, like, maybe we would get that if we actually, like, milled everything. Oh, wow. Uh, So you could bake a single garlic knot for you and your students to share. Yeah, but we're not even growing, you know, wheat right now. Like, maybe we'll plant it anyways. But still very excited. And, um, you know, specifically with with those grains. Um, And also, eventually, it would be amazing to uh, experiment with growing rice. And we have actually, for the podcast, Wythe, if you want to, you know, discuss this with me, but we've interviewed a couple of um, historians and uh, doctors that have been um, looking at the historical context of rice, um, especially in 
the United States, but also, um, you know, where a lot of rice has actually come from. Um, and so we're very, very excited to kind of, I'm excited to share that with you guys. I know why it probably is as yeah, well. Yeah, but, of course, of course. Um, yeah. And to th- talk about how grains shape cities, that's uh, hence the show about urban agriculture, talking yeah. about some field crops. Uh, but Thanks yeah, no, for I, tying that in. That's uh, important. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I like both, uh, and, and you're actually growing them, which is really fun at NYU. So it's not just, uh, it's not like you can't grow grains in the city. They're just not grown in a wide scale. So that's not where we started the show. But I like that you and Ali had suggested, why don't we learn more about um, how grains have shaped uh, landscapes and how that affects uh, urban populations as well. And mm-hmm. of course, with rice um, in the United States, we're talking about, you know, enslaved persons, um, you know, being taken from West Africa and bringing that knowledge to the, the U.S. South. And so we talked to uh, Dr. Etta Fields Black, uh, a professor at Carnegie Mellon, and uh, Dr. Peter Wood, who's, I believe, retired now, but was a Duke for a long time. Dr. Peter H. H. Wood. Wood. That's right. There's two <laughs> Peter Woods. We talked to the rice Peter Wood, who's awesome, not the other one. Uh, but yeah, no, and that's just, that's just one sort of train of thought that we followed over the summer. So we spent a bunch of time uh, basically interviewing lots of different folks. Um, I am excited about that. I'm also excited. So uh, I always want to just hear sort of what you're actually doing at NYU. Like, how do you teach growing grains? Why do you teach growing grains? Uh, what is what does happen to the seed if you don't make that one amazing garlic nut um, with sorghum and amaranth? Um, and then I'll, I'll come back to this. But, you know, and in part because I'm now at NYU. Um, yes, so yay. we're all sort of orbiting that world of like, you know, the big landowners uh, in yeah. the city. But and also, wait, yeah. wife, what do you do at NYU again? Um, I started a, a kind of interesting postdoc-esque job. Um, I research uh, public-private partnerships in urban agriculture, essentially, for um, the business school. So very weird, not where I thought I'd end up, but um, but very good in that, you know, it's showing, okay, here's people who believe in sort of um, market economies as they're set up today, uh, but want to really rethink, um, given climate disruption especially, and uh, all kinds of health issues like food insecurity and guess what, a pandemic, which threatened food supply chains, uh, they're really rethinking, okay, you know, where do we grow food? How do we get food? How much does it cost? Why are there hungry people in the United States, which is crazy? Um, And what role does urban agriculture play? So a lot of it really is just trying to understand um, some basic uh, answers to those questions and then think about, you know, what are the levers that, um, you know, private enterprise can, can pull. But also for me, it's really interesting to think about the city. We just had a mayoral election. So, uh, this is all kind of TBD, but it's really, it'll be interesting to see what the new administration does and just, you know, in general, moving forward in the future, um, if New York city really does want to adopt the UN sustainable development goals, you know, what, what does that mean for urban ag in, Mm -hmm. in specific, you know what I mean? Like, what does it mean to sustainably develop a city like New York where, uh, urban ag has been there for a long time, but not supported. Um, what would it mean to sort of change that? Yeah. So I think that's just a big question that that I hope on this podcast we can address. We had Catherine Garcia on at the end of last season, which yep. was really cool. We invited all the mayoral candidates and Catherine Garcia made time. And it was nice to just hear someone talk at length about what they would actually do. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hoping we can continue that, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to, to You mean to continue speaking with folks that are in the political realm. Yeah, why not? Elected people, people who have some sort of power, who may not be in urban agriculture per se, but like might have some ability to shape it. So I don't know if we'll get to sit down with the mayor, but uh, you know, we can dream. But so I'm supposedly going to be near you in the same part of the world uh, starting in September. Um, We're recording this in August. Uh, but yeah, what are what are you doing now? What are you growing now? And I'm just really curious, what are you going to do with the grains if you're not going to bake them and do a, a baked good? I mean, I think I think that's the thing. It's like with urban agriculture in general, there's so many purposes for it. So it's um, I feel like a lot of times folks will come into the urban agriculture world or want to study it to see um, how much you could actually produce from urbag, but so many folks do it for so many different purposes and the NYU Urban Farm Lab is specifically for education because it's at NYU it's through the Nutrition and Food Studies Department at Steinhardt and um and so we have many different classes where um they could actually come in and visit like for example our food history class um where you know we could actually um the professor who's teaching that class could talk about um how much grain has influenced civilizations and, you know, um, just a lot of different things in general. And then they could actually come to the farm and possibly see some of these very old grains growing. So, for example, we've grown einkorn before, which is a very, very old wheat. 
Um, and, and there's been this kind of new movement to bring back these old varieties because these old varieties have so many um, different attributes that have pretty much been bre breeded out um, to make the flower that we know of today, this industrialized grains, right? That's better to ship, that's, you know, will last longer, all these different things, um, but are lacking a lot of, um, you know, a lot of things that these older varieties had. So um, I think that's it. That's a key aspect also to talk about food and culture. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a class that is food and culture, um, at least, you know, um, so I'm also an alum for the, from the food studies program. Um, and I remember when I was in the program, I took a food and culture class, but, you know, so for example, we could talk about the history of amaranth and how it was grown in, you know, central and South America. Um, and I'm not sure if it was grown in Mexico, maybe it was, um, but how it was a very, very important grain um, to the indigenous folk who lived there and who, you know, were growing it for maybe hundreds, thousands of years. Um, and so we could give that historical and cultural context um, that a lot of it has not been taught or forgotten or something like that and be like, okay, you might see amaranth growing. You might not even know what it is because it readily self-sows. You could see it all over the city and not even know that it's amaranth. Um, and you know, it has such a high like protein rate and um, you could make a flower out of the seeds. The um, green variety of amaranth is called callaloo, which you could eat the leaves. Oh, um, that's callaloo. I didn't yeah, realize so that that's was the callaloo. same plant. Yeah. Oh, and also callaloo. amaranth, I think, is in the same family as quinoa. Yes. Right. So, so there's also we're also growing a green called sorghum, um, which I know nothing of. Right. A lot of this is grown in the um, in the carrot like in the Caribbean, um, it's grown in other places, like it's grown in a lot of different locations, especially um, in the South. And I knew nothing about sorghum. And I had one of my students um, who's from uh, the Southern part of India and she's like, oh, we, we use the seeds all the time and we pop it like popcorn. And then I follow some folks on, some farmers on Instagram who are in Georgia and they're like, yes, you could juice the stalks, right? So there's all these different reasons and I, um, to grow these things and it's not necessarily just for production, right? So it's like so many folks have been growing in urban areas, you know, for hundreds and thousands of years, not to produce a thousand heads of lettuce, but, you know, just for their own self-sustenance or because they want to save seed because they got seed from the original place that they were from and just to grow out that seed again and so that they could keep having it to supplement their diets for education purposes, for art purposes, you know, yeah. like well, obviously we cover all this stuff. But Yeah, no, but it's great. It's just good to hear because uh, one thing you're saying is you can take students into an agricultural landscape, even if it's really miniaturized, that's far from New York City and their, their lived experience probably in most cases and yet, um, you know, you're able to do that because you have this land. And so it's right. The goal isn't to feed them that crop or feed lots of people that crop necessarily, but it's using that crop to bring them into the world of growing and get them to think about um, the relationship between food, culture, and the living environment. So it's a good just reminder, I think, that NYU Farm Lab's cool and other spaces like it. There's so many educational farms in the city. The school gardens um, are just amazing. There's a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, and they're doing great work. So that's a completely different reason to grow in a way, yeah, from like a production focused, productivist, yeah. you know, how much can I mean, we get? Hey, we, we still produce, you oh, know, yeah, I'm, no. I'm still, still a gardener, still producing food. Sure, sure. Uh, but, no, but, and you can eat it, right? I mean, I'm not yes, saying it goes yes, to waste, just yeah. That, that, yeah, as you said, it, the goal is not to sort of, it's not a commodity in the sense of like, we need to grow a certain amount to pay back an investor per se. So yeah. um, we, we talked to people who are doing both. Um, I think this season, uh, you know, so over the summer, most of the interviews we've taped have been more about, um, yeah, the, the, these historical questions mm -hmm. and not so much focused on current sort of commercial urban ag in the city. Um, but we are talking to people outside of the city. We're actually getting some interesting requests. Yeah. So we talked to, for example, uh, Tyran Lewis at Hayru Urban Farming in St. Louis, uh, which is just a place I don't think any of us have been. And yet, you know, um, it's a big city and it's interesting to, to talk to someone who's doing urban farming um, in a city that is surrounded by farms. But I mean, mm -hmm. they're different their commodity farms right so we had a great conversation about just some of these questions about why would you start a vegetable farm um in the middle of you know sort of farm country but i mean in effect i mean 
you can be in the middle of farm country, but it's row crops that you're not going to eat. Yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't help you. <laughs> it doesn't connect you to. Yeah. Um, so you might you might see sort of farming happening, but it's it's a it's a different beast than um, horticulture and gardening and that that experience of of getting in the soil. So, yeah, we we talk to a lot of people and we are still doing interviews. We have a bunch. Um, uh, uh, sort of penciled out. So um, I think this season's going to be really great. We, you mentioned art. We're also going to talk about art, uh, eco art and farming, and specifically how artists, architects, urban planners have envisioned using food in their plans. So when they design some sort of utopia, how do they imagine that people eat? So that's something Allie West, who's joining us as a co-host, um, we're going to talk about. So we are joined by our third host. So it seems about that time. Uh, Allie Wist, third host of Fields, the unfinished story of urban agriculture. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself or do you want us to make up things about you? Ooh, I think you should make up things first. Ooh. And I can confirm or deny. Ooh, this is a fun game. This is like a weird two truths and a lie. Uh, <laughs> I, I know, Allie, you're an artist and you do photography things. Um, about food yes. and I like your art I could talk about some of your art about climate and food because I think it's really cool and it's stuck in my brain when we hmm. like met but I'm sure you do lots, lots of other things that I would have <laughs> a harder time uh, talking about so yeah. I'll let Melissa make those up <laughs> hmm. I'm wondering if I should actually go the full alley because uh, I've known Allie for a while mm. and actually the first time I met Allie we're going to lie and we're going to say is Hong Kong because uh, we actually went to Hong Kong together. So we many, did. Many years ago. Many moons ago. Yeah, and we studied uh, food and food culture in Hong Kong. Yeah, and you were studying specifically urban gardeners, and I was specifically looking at the ways in which restaurants there became a type of theatrical and artistic experience in a way that it doesn't play out in other cities. So That's a really good intro to Ali. <laughs> <laughs> So, Ali, do you want to add a little more texture um, from yourself? Sure. A few more truths, a few more lies. Uh, thank you both so much for inviting me to share in this season and hear from such fascinating and interesting people. Um, and, yeah, I work as a scholar slash artist, um, and a lot of my work looks at how sensory and embodied experiences, so taste and smell and food, in artworks can sort of chart our changing relationship to the environment over time, especially as we face climate crisis. Um, and I'm really interested in sort of generational amnesia and forgetfulness in society as it relates to those changes in our food system and our environment. Um, and yeah, I also work in, I've worked in media for a decade, so I'm currently still a photo editor for Bon Appetit magazine. And so on the side, also work in that sort of editorial media world. Yeah. And also you have another podcast. Or you have your own podcast. We should talk I about that I do have well. another radio show with yeah, Montez. Show. Montez Press Radio. And that one's sort of a futurist cacophony, sometimes related to food, but largely futurist philosophy and art. <laughs> cool. And that intersection is exactly why we thought it'd be a great fit um, to have you on Fields. Because we talk a lot about... <laughs> urban agriculture, but also art, the future of cities, the future mm. of food. And uh, we know you're very knowledgeable about those things. Mm. And in particular, um, in terms of scholarship, so Melissa, you teach in nutrition and food, and I've mostly taught, you know, history, anthropology, um, now weirdly at a business school. But um, <laughs> Ali, you're going to do a different kind of program and yeah. presumably teaching, but also you'll be in a different city. Yes. Um, and interacting with different urban uh, gardeners and farmers and other artists and whatnot. So maybe do you want to say a little about what you're journey you're about to take? Yes. So I'm starting a PhD, an arts PhD up at Rensselaer Institute, which is in Troy, New York, which actually has a, one of the best farmers markets in all of upstate New York. And the program is an arts program, but weirdly has a lot of intersections in food and urban ag. Kathy High is a fascinating artist up there who works a lot with an urban garden in downtown Troy, sort of like a youth mentoring program. Um, and yeah, so I will be doing an arts program, but we'll be looking at food and environmental humanities as important components of contemporary art practice that can help us understand what the challenges we face with the with climate change. 
Yeah, mm -hmm. and that makes me think a lot of um, education and just that, that Kathy uses urban gardening to talk about all kinds of things like biotechnology and the future of humanity and um, race relations and just injustice. And mm. uh, it's not just about growing food, but I mean, growing food is part of some of the things that, that her art praxis encompasses. And I feel like that's a cool space to be. Um, yeah, it really does intersect so many of these sort of justice movements that we've siloed for so long. And more and more we realize that, especially when it comes to environmental justice, food access, these affect everything else. They affect yeah. housing, they affect poverty. Yeah, absolutely. So that's great. Welcome, Allie. You're officially, uh, <laughs> you've already been doing interviews with us, so yeah. uh, it's a little. And and also, Allie, I know we're going to delve way more into this um, in the next episode, but um, do you also want to talk about what you've been up to this summer? You've been doing oh some gosh. cool things. Yes. <laughs> yes. And traveling. Yes. Yeah, so we gave up our apartment in New York, COVID, but also adventure and has sort of took off traveling the northern-ish route, made our way to Arizona and California. And along the way, I was tracking um, and collecting plants in various areas that seemed to be particularly challenging environments, especially really arid and dry ones, so the Mojave Desert, um, areas along the coast of California that might experience sea level rise. Uh, Phoenix, oh my gosh, Arizona is all just like canceled because of climate change. The water situation there is really wild. Um, and so trying to preserve the sense of those plants that I was collecting as sort of artifacts or timekeepers of the climate as it is now, because as it changes and as we adjust to new normals where it gets warmer and hotter, even uninhabitable in places, I kind of see smell as one way that we can look back and see what these other moments in time were as a kind of, yeah, artifact of this changing climate. God, I'm such a dork. The first thing that I think of is like, we won't tell the park rangers. <laughs> okay, I didn't, I did not-ish asterisk take anything I wasn't supposed to for the okay, most good. part, for the most part. Well, that raises all kinds of questions, which um, we can come back to in the context of where we live, New York, but also just to acknowledge that like the, the park rangers also were not here a thousand years ago and there were humans here who were managing landscapes. And so we should really acknowledge we're on um, you know, Lenape land that is unseated and, and we're, we're, you know, uninvited guests. And I think it's important whenever we talk about agriculture in general in the United States, but also with different cities to think about the specificity of that long durée, not just looking forward at what's going to mm. happen with climate disruption, but yeah. all the disruptions that have already happened, the apocalypses mm. that have already come, um, and, and the interesting, uh, terrible place we find ourselves in many ways. Um, yeah, and a lot a, of yeah, a great way to track it. Sorry, just the, the smell thing, I think mm, is a really interesting yeah. take. We've said, we, we talked to someone who wrote a book about urban ag. We interviewed them. Uh, oh, yeah. Very different to think about how you would show the smells or share the smells, mm. right, than writing a book and showing pictures. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and that's another component. It's like various smells of soil and plants from urban gardens around the country is something I've thought of. But really, I think smell is a kind of smell and taste both are media, really, which provide information about a place as it is in that moment. Um, and we're used to media being visual or text-based, but that's kind of hierarchical. Like media mm. can involve other senses, you know, that pro mm. that still provides valid information about the environment, about a farm, about mm. an ecosystem. Yeah. yeah. And it's also interesting, like, why media hasn't jumped on smell. <laughs> <laughs> There's not a really good app for that. Oh, but there needs to be a smell-o-vision, yeah, like yeah. attachment for that iPhone 15 or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> That would be my dream. That would be right. so great. You might have to work on that next after you do whatever. Or you're... like with VR, if if you know smell is kind of, I don't know. I don't think that's. I'm <laughs> I'm very behind in all that world, but there was a VR dinner at the James Beard house that I went to once. So they did involve taste with VR. So you'd be like in this three dimensional space with all these like blue triangular, and then you would eat something. And that taste was supposed to then be evocative of the similar aesthetic of your visual experience. It was very strange. Hmm. I would love to see a smell version of that, though, too. Yeah. I think I, this is going to happen through on the video games, massive online video games. Mm. Doritos or whatever is going to send you know a bag of chips you only open when you have the VR headset and you're, <laughs> you're slaying yeah, someone. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. Or like ads, you know, yeah, that's where right. it would start. Which actually goes, you know, visual marketing is already like pretty... Uh, 
intentionally designed to brainwash us into wanting pizza. Can you mm-hmm. imagine if you could also smell the pizza? I, I just think about popcorn. Popcorn yeah. is the most like, it's it's the smell of when you go into a room, mm. you either really, really want popcorn or you really, really don't. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, and we also have this hierarchy of smells of ones that are good or bad and it just reinforces that. I always have to tell my students that, that like, Smell and taste, you might say it smells bad or it tastes mm. bad, but that's a really culturally specific and non-objective right. opinion. Yeah. And especially if someone says like, oh, kimchi smells bad. And I'm like, ooh. Right. What does it actually smell like? Yeah. It's, it's mephitic or something. It has a specific quality. Describe the right. quality. Don't say good or bad because, yeah, it's good or bad is also not interesting in a way. It's right. It's adjective, right. really. Yeah. yeah, and it just furthers xenophobia at its at its worst and at its best, it's uninteresting, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, so yeah. that's exactly what we just talked about. Smell-o-vision um, <laughs> is why, why we brought Come you... Come to you, season three. <laughs> you can smell our podcast. That's, that's true. I don't know. <laughs> Now, just hit the large purple amaranth button to experience the smell of the amaranth we talked about 10 minutes ago. No, I, and that's why we brought you on, because we thought, you know, this is this will be such a great way to involve, um, you know, urban agriculture into these bigger conversations mm. about the future and um, that they, they go beyond, I think, some... Because I do think, Melissa, back to what you originally said, we get trapped off in that binary of, like, productivism or, like, education and community mm-hmm. uh, development, which are all can be fine. I mean, we can talk, you know, we could yeah. have sophisticated critiques of both, but... Um, but also there's so many other things to say about food and, and plants yep. and, and fungi and, and soil. So I think, you know, smell, taste, um, how these things have digital, you know, lives now. I mean, all of that is mm. sort of wrapped up in, in, in farming today. Yeah. And I think also just with previous episodes, I mean, we've, we've interviewed artists in the past. Like if we think of, um, like Candace Thompson. Or? Yeah. Candace Thompson so, yeah, and so the nice. next seed epoch seed library, right? Yes, so we've we've definitely interviewed artists in the past and and how they've been working with urban or within urban agriculture and how that gives us a greater vision mm. of um, urbag in general. Yeah, and urban agriculture is I think so appealing and has been in the food movement because it adds this dimension of embodied and local experience with food, and I think the more and more we understand about huge entangled systems and pollution and what Timothy Morton calls hyper objects, the more there's a shift towards actually having those sensory embodied moments where we can have like a quotidian, like sort of run of the mill daily experience that also is grounded in larger ecosystems and farming systems. And, um, and I think artists have a role to play in that because artists are about having embodied, you know, aesthetic, lived experiences through performance or through mm-hmm. installation or whatever. So there's, there is kind of a relationship there in like sensory engagement. Yeah, and also futurist visions, right? True. Yeah, right. for sure. And practical skilling up. I think where people want to engage with urban agriculture and just gardening because they want skills mm. that are resilient, quote unquote, or future oriented in a world where, um, yeah, water is running out or changing where it flows um, in some regions. And then, you know, luckily here we have water, but the temperature is kind of random and like, I don't know, like the other week the sky was just completely white and it was like the weirdest like weather oh. event. I was walking around, I, 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 it had some well, do you wildfires. Know, but yeah, 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 for for like at least a week, it was it was smoggy because crazy. of the wildfires. Right, the yeah. Montana smoke was here. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was so interesting because I was looking at the shadows and I was like, these shadows um, are similar to when we have a, a solar eclipse. Mm. Oh, so eerie. do you guys remember the solar eclipse yeah. from like a couple years ago? I was actually working at Roberta's when the solar eclipse <laughs> happened. And I remember looking at the shadows and they had this weird purplish hue to them. Mm. And and I remember looking at the shadows like a week or two ago, whenever it was. And I was like, this feels like a solar eclipse because there's literally smoke that's mm. like blocking the sun. Yeah. yeah. And we're having more and more of these really uncanny and eerie experiences that relate to wildfires thousands of miles away. Yeah. And in casual conversations now, people are telling me how they want to buy land in northern Michigan because it will be warm enough there to make wine. Like, that's just a casual conversation topic now. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's other flows that affect us, which is, uh, you know, money, essentially. So you have companies starting in New York or coming to New York, even if it makes no sense to grow food here to some degree a dollar for dollar, um, because they're part of a, it's a flagship, you know, it's, it's a major mm-hmm. city, it's highly visible, and they're part of a strategy 
um, to grow food in, in different kinds of, you know, urban spaces uh, all over the world where it makes way more sense in terms of just real estate costs. So, um, you know, from, from my perspective, you see just money flooding into indoor agriculture. And a lot of it is aimed at companies that started in New York or have some sort of relationship to the city. Um, and I just find that like fascinating that it went from, yeah, this is kind of futuristic or like a niche thing to like, okay, this is becoming this common part of, um, at least, you know, vegetable, some vegetable growing in the United States, you know, like pretty, mm. pretty rapidly. Um, and, and I think a lot of these changes are happening at once. So, you, so that is, uh, just another reason why urban ag seems to have a lot of attention on it. So it's, it's again, great to bring yeah. in more, more perspectives and hopefully with good guests, we also bring in a good <laughs> variety. We're trying yeah. to just open it up, you know, and also just like the impacts of climate change and how that might push people to want to grow indoors more mm-hmm. as our climate becomes less stable. Um, and how it might actually be really hard to work out in the field harder than it is now because of wildfires or because of extreme heat or because of all these things that are happening presently. And I think about that, like, you know, some a couple of weeks, either in June or July, where we had those heat waves, it was either a heat wave or a huge thunderstorm. And I couldn't be out there. Yeah, because I was like, well, I could be out there. But I'm, I'm lucky enough that like, you know, when it gets really hot, I could be like, hey, guys, we're going to cancel the volunteer day today. Are you cool with that? And they're like, yeah. And they're like, yes, we're okay with that. You know, or we are going to have a huge thunderstorm where it's going to hail. Are you guys okay with, uh, you know, with these gale winds if we cancel? And they're like, yes, that's okay. So, but not all farmers can do that. Right. Um, So just the reliability within that in general. Yeah. And we keep, and in some instances we reach for, kind of technophilic solutions and I feel like urban agriculture indoor farming is a weird confluence of how much are we going to find techno band-aids and not address the consumptive behavior and basically just fuel green capitalism and how much are we really going to look at the root of the problem and get people to be involved in a food system and compost and reduce consumptive destructive behavior Mm. and in a way like urban farming kind of fills that whole spectrum of endorsing the same bad behavior or really solving it in some profound and evocative ways yeah and a lot of that might have to do with this idea of designing with with closed loop systems Mm. in mind so that you are you know you have a compost system that you're um creating or that you're turning your waste into food for your plants Mm. right um and and also just like all of these design things of of thinking um watering in mind so how you're designing your beds and you know, are you putting the crops that don't need a lot of water on top of a hill if you're doing dealing with a hill? Or like, you know, all of these very kind of basic things that people have been doing for hundreds and thousands of years, but like how we really do have to think about that kind of stuff if we're thinking about not, um, you know, buying into the system. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. We should get into these um, topics in more depth. We should do whole episodes. You know, we could talk about yeah. um, outdoor urban farm design or, you know, all kinds of indoor farm design. And I love um, also the idea of, of diving into some of these questions of green capitalism because I've heard some really intelligent thoughts on this um, about other sectors. But I don't think I've heard a lot about how urban agriculture plays into this emergent phenomenon of, you know, mm-hmm. essentially, you know, our our capital is really going to change behaviors when they're investing in, in greening supply chains in some way. Um, is that changing enough? And, and how do we sort of 
evaluate that as consumers? How do we evaluate it as people um, working in these in these sectors? And I say that partially, um, you know, from a, from a personal basis of having to, to, you know, adjudicate that and decide, okay, what do I want to do sort of with my time? I want to work somehow and, and, and help agriculture become, you know, more equitable and sustainable. Yeah. What does that really mean? So um, I definitely feel like these are topics we should get to um, and we should come back to in host conversations in season two. Yeah. But also just to add on that, and I know, um, but also how that that flood of money going to these certain things affects the other folks who are doing or bad. Sure. Yes. Right. Um, on a community level, on a grassroots level, you know, that kind of thing as well. Yeah. And how all of that kind of interacts, interfaces, that kind of thing. Yeah. And political constituency building yep. so that, you know, it's is it possible to have farming become political so that um, it's not like, OK, buy a product and that's your good deed. It's like, let's grow stuff together and use that as a kind of practical politics. Um, and, and if we can collectively do that, you know, what what can we do? Uh, and I think you see that in among lots of communities now. And it's just a question of, of um, you know, can get become more visible uh, at the level of, you know, say New York City or, or mm-hmm. any other city, frankly. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's, these are questions we do get into to some degree with some of our guests, but I think, again, these are things we can sort of yeah. um, highlight and move to the top of our question yeah. list. Yeah, because I think for a lot of people, their choice to do better in the food system is still, like you said, to purchase a product that has a label or is, I mean, it could just be greenwashing. It might not even have the desired impact. And so, yeah, it's how does urban farming play in a role in not just Uh, or providing other options than just a purchase point and basically maintaining consumption as it is and maybe reducing waste. Um, You know, there's a lot of, I think, forward-thinking people. And I picked up a CSA in Red Hook this week, and I picked it up. I was so impressed. Usually when people try to reduce packaging, I'm sort of like, okay, this plastic isn't really compostable. This isn't really, you know, how much fossil fuels would it need to put it in some incinerator to really compost it? But I went to pick up the CSA in Red Hook and it came out of a plastic bin and it was in a legitimately compostable bag and I carried it to my fridge and I thought, oh my God, there is nothing going in a landfill. This came from a farm into a bin that will then go back to the farm and went to my fridge. That meant a lot to me. (laughs) Yeah. With the whole like farm to table movement, slow food movement, all of these things and how a lot of that has gone into this idea of um, you know, green consumerism in a way. Yeah. yeah, we'll just buy our way out of the problem. I mean, it reminds me of the history of littering and how the Sierra Club partnered with uh, manufacturers of plastic and kind of basically turned the problem of litter into a consumer problem. And it was our responsibility to recycle plastic bottles, not their responsibility to stop producing so many single-use plastics in the first place. Um, and so sometimes, yeah, it's interesting who gets the responsibility in curtailing um, our impact through consumption. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's there's several um, things that we could touch on there. One that just jumps to mind is, is composting in New York City is, I think, an interesting case where you have some people mobilized to compost organics, and that could go to farms and help farmers. Um, and, and farms could provide an outlet for that waste. But it's like getting it there is a logistical nightmare for the city. And they claim, well, we did a pilot, didn't work so well, and then COVID happened. So, like, we're not sure about what's going to happen in the future. So I think it'll be an interesting story to track and hopefully come back to in the season of um, what different people think. And also just that idea of whose problem is it? Because I, I talked to one expert who said, you know, it's really um, should be building owners to install basically ways to to move it through pipes. Because actually, we're pretty good. New York City is great, like, sewage, mm. basically. So mm. if you could just get it um, not in a physical landfill, but in a sewage uh, what you know, a water treatment plant, it can be treated and, and used and diverted from there. For example, you know, there's the new like biogas, you know, mm-hmm. um, situation. And, and I think that was really interesting and, and made me think, oh, wow. So you're saying it's not really like the city. It's not like the truck's responsibility or the farms or the consumer. It's actually should be on sort of landlords. And it's like, because landlords aren't incentivized in any way, they're not going to do that. Right. So it's, mm. I think, I think these questions are so interesting how they, they jump from, you know, consumer behavior back to the land. They jump to, you know, the built environment and capitalism back to the land and they sort of, you know, tie everything together. It's interesting because I did the master composting program um, within the Brooklyn Botanic Gardens and the New York uh, Department of Sanitation. Uh, They had this master composting program that I don't think they have right now, which is such a bummer, but it pretty much incentivized um, citizens, like people who live in the city to um, become 
master composters so they could get their they could help their community compost more and so we did all this research of you know what is the best way to get folks to compost and so there is this sense of like if you really get somebody interested in composting then hopefully they will think about where their food goes differently mm-hmm. like instead of this idea of out of sight out of mind when you throw something in yeah. the garbage it's garbage it goes away it goes to the landfill p.s i grew up in staten island so i take that very personally <laughs> <laughs> it does just not get that out there away so the away. idea of waste is like you know yeah. but you know how how maybe it isn't this one solution right Right. how it could be multiple things and also just this idea of like when we have these huge things that happen these like disaster type things that happen in the city why is compost the first thing to go yeah or when the budget is cut you know like if if it's a part of the department of sanitation or something like that and and so that that tricky thing and who was composting at that time it was the community gardens yeah but also the labor that's involved with composting which is something that i agree with in the sense of like okay if it's the department of sanitation the um they are going to pay for that labor whereas you know if it's your community or if it's like hey we'll just send it to our community farm i cannot tell you how many people were like hey could i drop off my compost here and i'm like if I took everybody's compost from this residential building right now, I would have to hire somebody else to do all of this work, manage it, mm-hmm. do all the labor to turn it, all of this other stuff. You also stuff. wouldn't have any land to grow amaranth and sorghum, right? Exactly. Would... Well, no, you can you can fit mean... compost in there, and and but you know, but it it, it is also like a skilled labor as well. It's like mm-hmm. I I worked I volunteered with the Red Hook Compost. Um, site a lot and man the the skill of of you know just doing all these systems and how to do it in an urban area without getting pests and all these other things and just like you know doing it without using fossil fuels so without machinery and all this other stuff and how it's very possible to do it all with like by hand and that kind of thing anyway sorry no, i really great. delved into that so we one should, but... we're gonna get into that too i think <laughs> Just to, this is a teaser. We teased a bunch of things. We're going to talk <laughs> about art. We're going to talk about grains. We're going to talk about compost. compost. We're going to talk about climate disruption, and uh, and many other topics. But those are those are some big ones. Um, for our listeners outside of New York, can you explain why Staten Island is very triggering for you in terms of trash? <laughs> well, Staten Island is triggering a joke. No, just, uh, <laughs> no. Um, I'm from there, and and actually, I'm I'm very proud to be from there. But I remember when I was young and I was watching Ripley's Believe It or Not, that kind kind of shows my age. But, um, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, the Staten Island landfill, Great Great Kills was on Ripley's Believe It or Not as one of the man-made structures that you could see from space. So uh, thank you to Robert Moses, who yes, created all of our highways and all these other things, but also helped kind of create the landfill of Staten Island when it used to be mostly farmland and all these other things, but how it uh, became one of the largest landfills in the world. Wow. Um, and just growing up around that, the the smell of it, even though I wasn't, you know, my neighborhood wasn't near it, even though, but I did share the same zip code as the largest landfill in the world. Wow. And so it's just like, you know, just being around that and did that change you know, how I throw things away. I don't know if it really does. So it's like how to connect those two things, but also that there is no away. You know, when we throw it away, there is no away. Look at the oceans, look at all this stuff. Look at your home, like away is where you're from. And it changes the concept of land in a way when you're on an island and then also the notion of land is shifting and it's also other people's detritus in a way makes up the land. It becomes a complicated sort of mythology just for yourself and your identity and where you're from yeah I I remember reading somewhere or hearing somewhere this is totally anecdotal when the Dutch paid um, the indigenous folk more money from Staten Island than from Manhattan because Staten Island was their hunting grounds and also a lot of it was farmland Mm -hmm. like I remember my poetry teacher in high school her grandfather had a farm on Staten Island wow and there's still farms there today so it's just like this interesting thing of like how it's thought of as the armpit of New York City which it is (laughs) and that it should just be part of New Jersey and also with all the COVID stuff going on and it's like hey you know I'm from there I'm very proud (laughs) from being from there um a, a whole population a whole island can be stigmatized by something that was done to it mm, yeah yeah so and how these larger systems of play really impact our daily lives and our neighborhoods um 
which I think is something we're all interested in, which is why growing kale on your block, whether it's in a really dense urban area or not, um, matters because it relates to the kale that then isn't grown in the arid climate of Arizona with incredibly distant and unknown labor. Um, and so those local impacts of large systems matter. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, and maybe we could also come back to, uh, over the course of the season, this idea of, uh, of like facile interpretations, like, oh, New York City doesn't have um, land and, and farms, uh, you know, and, and yet it does. And even Staten Island, read as, you know, oh, it's, it's the armpit or whatever, but it also still has active farms. Uh, and, you know, it, the, the, the majority politics of Staten Island compared to the rest of the city aside, it's, it's true. The city is just incredibly um, heterogeneous. So there, there's, there's a lot of interesting um, richness there. And I think something we try to do on the show is, is yeah, approach all of these topics in, in urban agriculture and, uh, and, and look at them a little more sort of objectively and not sort of assume good or bad. So there's all kinds of different people growing different crops in cities for different reasons, and we're interested in, in broadly why that is, instead of saying, okay, these, this is good, this is bad, uh, off the bat. Yeah, I feel like so. urban farms get you to the heterogeneity, what is the word? Geneity, I think, right? The heterogeneity of a cityscape. When we were in Arizona, we visited Prescott, and there was the only urban farm in Prescott dealing with, um, you know, really elaborate irrigation systems to try to preserve and conserve water. And he's right next to the rodeo in total Trump country. But there was just an interesting confluence and contrast in ideals and values. But they were friends, you know, the Trump rodeo dudes would come over to this guy's and he was at a meditation event that we were at. And so it was just you saw in that moment a diversity that a city contains that you don't always see in other um, aspects. Yeah, and giving people green space and something to do in green space uh, might bring interesting, uh, you know, alliances and interesting groups together. So the one thing we haven't noted yet in this episode is that we're recording in Heritage Radio Network's studio in Roberta's Pizza, which is really cool in part because Melissa worked at Roberta's for years. We're here watching a stuffed bird and some very live plants and lots of uh, happy vaccinated people um, enjoying the end of summer. Because <laughs> our studio's in uh, Roberta's Pizza. Uh, Roberta's Pizza. <laughs> it's really great to be back at Roberta's because I used to be the gardener here maybe three years ago now, which is kind of crazy. And I For was, a long time. Yeah, I was I was the gardener here for seven or eight years. It's a, I lose track. But <laughs> um, yeah, it was one of my first edible food growing jobs or edible gardening jobs. Hmm. Um, Tell us a little bit about what that is like. What is the infrastructure at Roberta's and how big is the farm and where is it in relation to the kitchen, to the pizzas? <laughs> yeah, so we would always talk about Roberta's as a compound, hmm. um, which sounds so weird that, you know, we'd be able to like, you know, if there was ever a zombie, you know, invasion or something, <laughs> we could all go to the compound. But yeah, so there's the main restaurant and then there's the tiki bar and then there's kind of the backyard. And then there's a whole other building that has the to-go and offices and all these other things. And so um, actually on top of this studio was a bunch of growing beds that were hoop houses, that had hoop houses over them. And so I would be on top of this studio most of the time growing baby greens and you know, tomatoes and eggplant and all these other things. So it's really interesting to be in the studio when a lot of times I worked on top of the studio and there was also like a greenhouse and all these other things. Um, and it was a container garden. So it was dispersed throughout the compound. It was on roofs. It was in containers, um, you know, all over. And so many times people would be like, hey, where's the garden? And I'd be like, it's all around you. <laughs> Just look. <laughs> That's a good um, metaphor for life. There is a garden all around you. You just have to look for it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was really fun. And I was here for many, many years. And it's kind of fun to be back. Yeah. Be under and inside the farm in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's interesting. You, you always refer to Roberta's as a garden, but the NYU Urban Farm Lab is a farm. But to me, they're, they're both relatively small. I guess one is more sort of one 
big soil site. Yeah, and here I mean, it's lots of little containers. It makes such a difference, actually, having like one big space mm. as compared to containers. Like, I feel like I could grow so much more at the NYU Urban Farm Lab, and I do grow a lot more. Um, just because if you think about every time you have a container, you have to think about the boundaries or the borders of that container and how you lose space within those borders. But if you have this whole landmass, mm. um, you could grow so much more because you don't have all of these borders that are cutting up your space. I always think about this. It sounds weird, but I in undergrad, I was an environmental science major. Um, partially. And um, that was like one of the things that I was studying. And I always think of like wildlife areas. And every time you put a highway through that wildlife area, you're cutting off that wildlife area, but also the like, however amount of space that's the border between the highway and the actual wild area, how a lot of animals won't go there just mm. because it's close to the highway. Mm. Um, so you're making that space even less. Mm. Sorry, that's my no, weird yeah. analogy of, of like, you know, growing in containers as compared to like a large yeah. space. No, and it's and, and that idea of marginality and um, the fractalization of everything. So this isn't yeah. just farming, but farming is one where it's very visible now with, with distributed indoor agriculture companies who are selling, um, you know, industrial appliance size, refrigerator size units for growing food in existing businesses. And then, of course, you have just home gardening booming. So little hydroponic kits alongside, mm -hmm. of course, just containers. It's not something I thought of in terms of your um, work here, except, um, like I said, you just always sort of refer to this as a garden, <laughs> um, even though to me it's like, oh, well, it's being paid for by a business. So it's like, to me, it's more of like a farm, but it makes sense that it's, you know, it's like a, a lot of that is due to scale and just, I don't know, it's interesting even how we use these yeah, terms, right? Yeah, and like, that's also interesting because at the NYU Urban Farm Lab, we cannot sell right. our, our produce. Um and we donated it, we give it away, we do like all these other things where it's like, yes, uh, at Roberta's, we would sell the produce on top of dishes. Um, but yeah, so it's interesting. I think it was also because NYU really wanted it to be a farm. Right, right. No, but yeah, <laughs> the, the word conjures something different than a garden. Yes, yeah, right. So. And that's a, it's a thing to think about in terms of what we call our own um, home gardens. If we're growing food, call it your own farm. You know, if that relates you to that ecology or to that practice in a way that's mm. important to you, I feel like we could use that word intentionally where we want to call something like, no, this is farming. This is what I'm doing. I'm implicated in the system of farming and I'm also growing my own yeah. food. And that's also interesting, the the intentionality of like professionalism or something. So if you call it a farm, is it considered more professional right. yeah. than if you call it a garden? And if it's a garden, is it more... Um, uh, what is that word that actually stems from love? I was just watching the uh, Fantastic Fungi, and oh, they describe Paul Samet's this. Amateur? Is Amateur, it? yes, yes, yes. But yes. he's so. de definitely professional, even though, yes, I Yeah, I, but in, in, in Fantastic Fungi, they're sure. like, this is the best amateur, and I'm like, he's not an amateur. Yeah. But anyways. But um, we have these definitions yeah. that connote, and I also think there's even a gendered component to it, where gardens totally. have been associated with women. Yep. And so Women's I think work. the more we can play with that intentionally and make mm -hmm. our own choices is great. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you guys again for inviting me to be on season two. I'm really excited and I can't wait for all the folks we're going to talk to. And I'm really excited for season two personally because we interviewed one of the artists in Future Farmers, which is an amazing collective that um, brought an urban grain farm to Copenhagen and has since taken a boat with the seeds uh, around the world, around the Mediterranean. And we got to speak with Amy Franceschini about her work with Future Farmers. If you enjoy thinking about the future of farming and the future of cities and any of the topics we mentioned today, please subscribe to Fields, the Unfinished Story of Urban Agriculture on Heritage Radio Network and consider becoming a member of Heritage Radio Network the best food radio in the world, the home of food radio. And big thank you to Roberta's Pizza.